indeed very, very honored to be with you today. It's a special privilege to me to get to be uh, here, especially uh, with uh, the Alexanders. They are just very dear to our hearts. And as uh, Dean of the School of Theology at Southern, it's great to see our graduates doing well. Uh, now, I just want to tell, as his preaching professor, I take all of the credit, but none of the blame. <laughs> all right, so if you think he's a good preacher, you're welcome. If you don't, I'm sorry I couldn't do anything with that guy. <laughs> it, it, it is especially my delight to be with you to open the Word. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23 as uh, we look into what is a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, you know, when I was a boy, I'm not making this up, I lived out in rural, extremely rural West Kentucky. And by the way, if you're from Kentucky, you don't say Western Kentucky, you say West Kentucky. And... I lived at a place called Lick Skillet on Watermelon Road by Whippoorwill Creek. And true to Kentucky form, we had a washing machine on our porch. And uh, that old washing machine had a ringer on it. You, some of you remember that? My mother used to wash clothes, and then it had a ringer up the top. And now we were, we were highfalutin. It was an electric ringer, an electric washing machine, you know. And so... Uh, my mother would let me help her, and we'd take those clothes out of the washing machine, and then you put them through the wringer before you... We didn't have a dryer. You hung them out on the, on the clothesline, but you'd wring them out, and you'd put them through once, and those, the wringer would pull them through and squeeze the water out of them, and then she'd say, put them through again, and you'd put it through a second time, and more water would come out. You'd, they would be stiff as a board when they came through that thing, and she'd say, put them through again, and the third time you put it through, even... Even the third time, you'd still see water coming out of it. Now, Luke chapter 23 is one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible because it's about the crucifixion of Jesus. It is, in fact, the center of all of, of the Bible. Everything before this points to it. Everything after this is because of it. There's nothing more central to the Scripture than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the gospel. It is the gospel by which we're saved. It's the gospel that... We trust, and, and God counts our faith as righteousness. It's the way that he has paid for our sins so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And yet, every time I go back to this passage, it's, it's like putting those clothes through the ringer again. I, I've been studying this my whole life. I've, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I've been in the ministry, ministry since I was 19. I've studied the Bible literally my entire life. I'm now 59, and uh, I, I've... I know the Bible well, and yet every time I return to this, it's like I see things I never saw before. It just keeps ministering to me. Read with me, if you would, and let's see if we can squeeze more gospel uh, refreshment out of this as we read it, beginning Luke chapter 23, verse 32. So we consider these two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, we live in an age now where we're reinterpreting history. We're reevaluating lives. You look at lives, historical figures, and the guys we used to think are heroes, and now we're, we're realizing they were more complex than that. Like Thomas Jefferson, is he the founding father of democracy or is he a rapist and an abuser we look at a guy like uh, Fritz Hobbel you've probably never heard of him but you owe a lot to him Europe was actually starving at the end of the 19th century they, they couldn't produce enough food and and this guy figured out a way to put nitrogen in the soil we call it fertilizer and because he did that uh, they could produce enough food to feed people. In fact, now there's plenty of food in the world, really. There, there might, we might have distribution issues, but we can produce food because he figured out how to put uh, nitrogen in the soil and to fertilize it so that it would produce more. But, you know, a byproduct of that process was a nitrogen gas. And he figured out how to make that into a, a poisonous gas that he himself used during World War I to gas Allied troops when he fought for Germany. It was only really just a few years later when a guy named Adolf Hitler took his invention that he had called Zyklon A, and Hitler called it Zyklon B, and took the odor out of it and used it to gas six million Jews, including family of Fritz Haber, who was himself a Jew. Now we look back at his life and we say, how do we evaluate that life? I mean, he fed the world, but he was convicted as a war criminal. What do we do with that guy? I mean, he simultaneously won the Nobel Prize for science and was convicted as a war criminal because of using it to gas Allied troops. Now, you can look at a lot of lives like that, include, including yours and mine. We might say, well, I'm... I'm not all bad. I'm, I know I'm not all good. I know I'm a sinner, but you know I'm not that bad. And we begin to excuse ourselves. But when it comes to the lives of these two thieves, there's absolutely nothing good said about them. There's no problem evaluating their lives. They're, well, uh, Luke, in fact, calls them malefactors, I think was the King James word for it, criminals. It's translated here in the ESV in verse 32. Matthew and Mark called them lestes, thieves. But we know from Josephus, 
who mentions Barabbas by name, and he calls him a lestase. That this is a word that was used for first century terrorist, insurrectionist. They, as Jews, were opposed to the oppressive Roman government, and they would frequently kill people that they thought were in collusion with Rome, and they were trying to start, strike fear into the hearts of both Roman soldiers within Jewish citizens who helped them. And, and for this, we don't know exactly what their crimes were. We know they're criminals. We know that they're convicted. We know that it's considered worthy of death, capital punishment. And so for this, they're sent to the cross. Nothing good about them. There's not one positive word in any of the Gospels about them to this point. In fact, in Mark's account of this very story, in Mark 15, verse 32, he's describing all the people that railed on Jesus, those people that uh, hurled insults at Jesus, and Mark says that those, plural, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In other words, initially, both of them, both of them insult Jesus, both of them rail on Jesus, along with the the scoffers, along with the soldiers, along with the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, both of these thieves rail on Jesus. Now, I want you to think about what that means because I find it absolutely astounding that as they are themselves being executed, that they would take the time and waste the breath to insult a fellow prisoner who, like them, is being tortured to death. You see, crucifixion is a particularly gruesome way to die. It, uh, a lot of times we don't stop and think about how one dies in crucifixion. We sort of think maybe you bleed out, but that's not it at all. You asphyxiate. You, you run out of air. See, they would hang them on that cross and drive those nails in, the hand, in their hands. Indeed, this would dehydrate their bodies. They would lose fluids from their hands and their feet but what really happens is that body is elongated and the weight of the body begins to pull down and dislocate those shoulders and and elongate the torso that the lungs become stretched thin and with every breath out when they draw breath back in they can't get quite as much air as they let out and just slowly over the course of hours their lungs stretch thinner and thinner they get less and less air they'll even go to the extreme length of pushing up on the nails in their feet just so they can gasp one more time and if breath is the thing you're running out of if breath is the most precious thing in the world at that moment to waste it insulting the guy that dies beside you is about as great evidence of the hardness of the human heart as I can present. It's, it's stunning. Here they are dying and cursing Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us how it happens, but he tells us that it happens that there's a change in the heart of one of these two guys. And when he hears his partner in crime rail on Jesus, after hearing what Jesus said, notice in verse 34, 
Jesus is suffering with them, but he's not suffering like them. And they're cursing. They're insulting. They're interacting somehow with the crowd. What's Jesus doing? He's calling out to his Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No one crucified ever died like that before. Now here's a man who has spent his life in opposition to the Roman government. You see, the Roman government didn't execute Roman citizens. They executed Jews. It was crowd control, if you will. It was the way to control the local population, to strike fear into their hearts. And by the way, it wasn't up on a hill far away. It was, they would crucify them right by the roadside. And they didn't waste wood. They didn't have to lift them way up in the air. They only used as much wood as they could to get their feet off the ground. It, it, it really doesn't matter that they're up high. And they're, they wanted the local population walking the road to hear the anguished cries of dying men. They wanted them to see the sight of the blood streaming from their hands and feet. They wanted them to smell the odor of death and to know that if you cross the Roman government, this is the fate that awaits you. And so Jesus and these two thieves crucified there at a place called the skull, Golgotha. And this thief, here's Jesus, dying so differently than he and his partner are dying that there's a change in his heart when his friend rails on Jesus hey aren't you the Christ save yourself and us listen to what he says don't you fear God now what a statement he doesn't say are you that inhumane? He doesn't say, are you going to waste your breath on that? He says, don't you fear God. Because he has seen a connection between Jesus and his Father. As Jesus dies right in front of him, as Jesus calls out in prayer, as Jesus quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This thief knows who Jesus is. Don't you fear God, seeing that you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now listen how he changes from the second person, you, now to the first person, plural. And we, indeed, justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God? You are under the same sense of condemnation. And we, indeed justly, we deserve to die. We're guilty of the crimes of which we are accused. We, we are dying because of our deeds. But this man has done absolutely nothing wrong. Then he looks at Jesus. And he says what I think is the most astounding profession of faith in the Bible. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about professions of faith in the last few years. What, is, what does it mean to call on God for salvation? Is it praying a sinner's prayer? Is it, is it saying some 
memorize speech? What, what is the profession of faith? Well, look at this man's simple sentence. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that blows me away. Because you see in, in this, first of all, this guy gets the desperation of his own brokenness. He knows he's broken. He knows he's guilty. He deserves to die. But at the same time, he sees the wholeness of Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what a thing to say to a guy who's dying. When someone's dying, you might, I don't know, you might say goodbye. You might say, I love you. You might say, uh, may the Lord bless you. I mean, there's a lot of things you might say to somebody who's dying. But this thief who's never even met Jesus before simply says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In that, there's the hope of forgiveness. By the way, notice what Luke is doing in this passage. Did you see how many people use the word save? First, the, the Jewish leaders say, he saved others, let him save himself. And then the Roman soldiers who offer him the sour wine, they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then the thief who's dying with him says, hey, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. The only guy who speaks to Jesus in this whole crucifixion scene who does not use the word save is this thief. And he, notice his verb, is simply remember. What a humility there. He doesn't even dare ask to be saved. He doesn't think he deserves salvation. But he knows who Jesus is. In fact, search the Gospels. See if you can find any other person before the death of Jesus who knew he was going to be resurrected. Now, Jesus told plenty of them. Beginning at Caesarea Philippi, he begins to tell the disciples, the Son of Man has to be turned over to the, to the, the leaders there, and he's going to be killed. But the third day is going to rise again. And he's told them, but notice, there's no disciple at the foot of the cross saying, hey folks, I know this looks bad, but come back in three days, he's going to rise again. No one gets it. No one believes it. The disciples have scattered. The mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the other women are there at the foot of the cross weeping. And John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, is there with Mary and, and he's crying. Nobody is saying, hey Jesus, you're going to be sitting on the throne in just a little bit. Except this thief. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say, save me because, or save yourself because he knows Jesus is saved. He, I don't know how he puts it together. Maybe his mother took him to the synagogue or his father took him to, to, to the temple. Maybe going to the temple as a boy, singing the, the Hallel Psalms and, and singing the Psalms. He hears 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe he knows Isaiah 53, and he knows about the suffering servant. And suddenly, dying there on the cross by Jesus, and hearing what Jesus says, and how he speaks to the Father, and the way he dies so differently, and with such love and forgiveness, he, he puts it all together, and he knows. I don't know how he knows, other than the Holy Spirit illumined his heart and his mind, but I know that he knows, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then the answer of Jesus is as remarkable as the, the statement of this thief because in, in this one little sentence, it's like Jesus pulls back the curtain between life and death and lets us look on the other side to see what it's like. You ever wonder, what's, what is it like? What is it like? When someone close to us dies, we, we think about it. What's it like on the other side of death? In this one sentence, Jesus lets us see. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. What an incredible statement. See, listen to me. Jesus sees faith where we often don't see it. Imagine everybody there at the scene of the crucifixion crying. Maybe this thief had family there. Maybe his mother's there. I don't know. The scripture does not say. But I'm pretty sure that his family thought, what a waste, what a tragedy, what a, what a terrible end to the life of our son, our brother. Uh, and, and they're unaware of this conversation on the cross in which Jesus says to the one who knows this is not the end for him, Jesus says back to him, it's not the end for you either. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Look at that. Beyond death, there's personality. You ever think about that? Will we know each other in heaven? You know what? We're not going to know less in heaven than we do on earth. We're going to know each other. In fact, you're going to still be you in heaven. You are, on the other side of death, who you were in this life. Now, for the believer, we're going to be a much better version of myself. In fact, I will be more myself than I've ever been, and I'm going to be the perfect version of myself. I, I'm not going to be besieged by my flesh and my, my sinful tendencies. I'm going to be free from that. And my wife, Tanya, looks forward to that day when I will be a better version of myself and not be the sin, sinner that I am now. I'll be a sinner who's sanctified completely, holy. Jesus says, you will be with me. And he says, you'll be with me today. Not only is there beyond death personality, there's immediacy of personality. There's nothing in the Bible about your soul sleeping. Jesus said, today you'll be with me. Now, there are some people who argue, no, no, Jesus is saying, today I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. Why on earth would you say, today I say? Now, let me just say, is it grammatically possible? Yeah, it's just nonsensical. Today, I'm saying to you, don't believe that. <laughs> and if I preach to you tomorrow, tomorrow I will say to you, don't listen to it. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. There's immediacy of personality beyond death. There's a place. Did you notice the word paradise? I like that word. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about how he was caught up into the third heaven and he there calls it 
paradise. Now, I don't know how you picture paradise, but anything you picture, heaven is far, far better. It's a place where we're free from sin and fear and abuse and disease and temptation. It's paradise. Because beyond death, there's a person. And that person is Jesus. Today, you'll be, listen to this, with me in paradise. Could there be four more beautiful, comforting words in all the Bible than that? With me in paradise? And Jesus is not saying this to the most religious person. He's not saying this to the doctors of the law. He's not saying this to the theologian. He's saying it to a thief who's been rightly convicted of crimes of which he pleads his own guilt. But Jesus is taking him to heaven. You know, I, I read in the book of Colossians where it says there that Jesus uh, made triumphed over principalities and powers, making a display of them openly. I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine Satan and all his imps gathered there in the spiritual realm as they see the moment that they've waited for? They see the, the death of the Son of God, Satan's great rival, Satan, whom Satan has tempted and Satan has tried to make him stumble and fall. And now the light of God is being extinguished as, as God himself, God the Father, turns his back on his Son. Satan thinks he's won a great victory. But Jesus, just to show that he's still Lord, as he dies, snatches a man from the very gate of hell and takes him to heaven with him. Could anything show his lordship more beautifully than that? Because there's nothing that reminds Satan of his ultimate impotence in the face of God's power than robbing the strong man's house. And Jesus bound him and robbed him of a soul right there on the cross. Beyond death, there's a person. It's the Lord Jesus. To be with him in paradise is the greatest hope, the greatest joy, the greatest blessing we could ever have. And you, you see, what is it that Jesus rewards? Is it this guy's goodness? No. He, both thieves are identical. They are alike in every way except one. One has faith in Jesus and one does not. One acknowledges who Jesus is one does not. One mockingly says, save yourself and us. One in humility and brokenness with the knowledge of his own sin and the holiness of Jesus says, Jesus, just, just remember me. He makes no demands. It's enough to him to say to Jesus, when you sit on your throne in the new Jerusalem, remember that the guy who died beside you knew who you are. See the humility? That's what it is to come to Jesus in faith. We don't come with demands. We don't come feeling entitled. We come broken in our sinfulness. Like this thief, knowing that we deserve hell. We deserve death. But coming to him in the simple faith of this thief, just saying, Lord, I, 
I don't deserve salvation. But I know who you are. And I believe what you said, that you came to die for me. I want you to think about these two thieves. Mark them well. You are going to spend eternity with one of them. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. With your head bowed, your eyes closed, your heart open, I, I wonder how God might speak to your heart today as directly as Jesus spoke to that thief on the cross. Maybe you're already a believer. You should rejoice and praise God for the salvation you have in Jesus Christ. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Him, if you'll come to Him right now, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, and simply say, Lord, I know you are the only one who can save me. And I don't deserve your salvation, but I put my faith and trust in you, knowing that you died on Calvary's cross for my sins, that you rose from the grave to, to show that you conquered Satan and death for me. Today, I'm placing my faith and trust in you. God will save you. Father, I pray that everyone here hearing this word, everyone that has watched this on television or on the internet might see Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords and know that he is the one who sits on the throne. And our only hope is that he in his grace and mercy would remember us in the great gift of salvation. I pray that if there's someone here today who needs to place faith and trust in Christ, that he or she might do that in this very moment. And for those of us that are already believers, Lord, help us to live out the truth of that gospel every day of our lives, that it might be spent in gratitude and pursuing holiness through the power of your grace and your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.